0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. Je suis Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co hosts, tablet senior writer Leah Leibovitz. Look who goes first.
1: Oh, wow, he took
2: it away from me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I don't like you being back in
0: the studio. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. This week, two Jews, cookbook author Adina Sussman, author of the Sababa cookbook. And also, we will be hearing a conversation that Stephanie had with Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir Inheritance which starts out with the unexpected results of a DNA test. It's everyone's worst, (laughs) myheritage.com, myancestry.com, 23andMe nightmare, the unexpected results.
1: Your unexpected results were that you're a 98.3% Ashkenazi (laughs) (laughs) instead of a 99.6% Ashkenazi. Guys, I am 1%
2: North African, never forget.
0: Leo, you never did the test, right?
2: I don't
1: think I have to do the <laughs> test, Mark. I think you look at me and be like, oh yeah, that's a Jew.
0: I think your height comes from the 2% finish that you are. You were actually 98% Ashkenazi Jew, of, of, 2% from, finish. From
1: some burly Cossack that that's way right. back in the day got frisky. That, that's right. With, with Safta.
0: Speaking of manly manliness and athletic prowess of all kinds, for me, it all began with Matthew Futterman, who made his second appearance on our show as Jew of the Week to talk about his book, Running to the Edge, a band of misfits and the guru who unlocked the secrets of speed. I was so into that book and so into him that when he told me I had to get a jogging stroller, I went out and I did it.
2: You bought one?
0: I mean... You know, I, I went out and I Craigslist. waited for someone to. <laughs> no, did you get one as no, a gift? I, I, well, no. <laughs>
2: he paid yeah, for no, one. Yeah, no, no, no. I didn't pay for
0: one. I got one for free because my homie Dan Weinberger saw my posting on the Westville dads Google group list and said, "Hey, I have one that I haven't used, so I've been running." And Labor Day is the annual uh New Haven Labor Day road race, which is a big deal. It's actually. The uh, American Track and Field 20K Championship. If you want to, so there's a 20K and there's a half marathon. The half marathon is slightly longer than 20K, so near the end you diverge. And if you want your results to be 20K certified, you go left. And if you want half marathon, you go right. And of course, the real the real ballers like they go 20K because that's that's a major. 20K. Yeah. Anyway. Um. So there's like an elite athletes tent uh, on the New Haven Green where they're getting rubdowns and massages beforehand, and they're like eating goo and and drinking special I electrolyte the goo. drinks. Dude, it's the best thing. In the and world. but anyway, this is a huge thing in New Haven, and and a thousand people compete, and it's um you know thirteen point something miles, and it loops through all of New Haven. It's just this amazing urban experience. And it uh, two things occurred to me as I was running this race, again, because Matthew Futterman gets me running and I decide I know what I'll do because I've been running two or three miles every morning. I'll run 13 miles, which was <laughs> <laughs> it's a great idea. Auspicious. all um, uh, right auspicious idea. And um, two things occurred to me as I was running this race. One is it must be the only road race in the country. One
1: is I'm forty six. <laughs> and the second
2: one, what was I thinking?
0: <laughs> those were the last two. Those were Damn
2: things, you, Futterman. Those were
0: things three and four. I could show you the blisters on my feet. Um, and I'm I'm hobbling today. But Two things occurred to me first. One is it must be the only race in the country that the course for which is not designed for natural beauty because we could do such a <laughs> course. I mean, we were actually on the shoreline, like we could we could take people right to the Long Island Sound, trot them out five or six miles, trot them back five or six miles, done, and it would be a beautiful course. This is a course that goes through all of New Haven's urban neighborhoods, which means you go through Beaver Hills and all the Labavachers are down there, and their kids are handing out little cups of water and they're holding up. I expected signs that said Moshiach now, but we don't <laughs> we don't get those. We just get signs like Go Runners, which is is amazing. Then you go through Fairhaven and all of the, you know, Latino immigrants are there. Also the most economically vibrant streets in New Haven, probably. I mean, amazing. And the people, I mean, so they're out cheering for you. There are bands playing when you go through it. So the, insanely the great. Italy
1: and people hand you slices yes. of
0: upbeats Yes. You go down Chapel Street straight through Worcester Square, right through the abits district, through the pizza district. But then there's these parts to connect them where literally you're running in the shadow of highway overpasses. And I just think these elite runners, all of whom train in like oregon it says where they're from it's like you know fort collins colorado eugene oregon right they're out there in like beautiful western america they fly here for the national 20k championship and they spend you know two to three miles running underneath uh, i-95 right I- I- running underneath <laughs> the i-95 overpass <laughs> and they must be thinking like what the hell is going on in this, this is, city this is,
1: by the way this is why it's a great race because they really want to get the hell out of there so <laughs> fast so like i'm just kind of like it just but- to get out
0: But it's like, there's no, I mean, they basically designed this race to pass through as many different neighborhoods and as many ethnic communities as possible. And it is America. I was so happy. And not only when I ran by the corner, like a few hundred yards from my house. So I got to go through Westville where my people were all cheering for me. But then the other thought I had is, is there another sport where the slowest, most ungifted neophyte runs in the exact same heat, the exact same competition as the greatest in the world. I mean Wimbledon, you can't get near like you're lucky if you see them practice right. from ten feet away or twenty feet away. Otherwise you have to pay. Here, like literally you can enter the you, same race. You, Me you and Meb Me Kafleski. Like, are in the same race. I can give him a high five. I mean, I can't because I can't catch him. And it occurred to me this is the ultimate democratic sport. And I want Futterman to write his next book on that. Like this is the solution to everything. Two things for next year. These are my my next year Labor Day resolutions. One is I'm gonna run it labor again. Fifty
2: 57, seven 57, eighty. Whatever year next year is yeah. seven eighty-one.
0: Number one, I'm gonna run it again. Number two, next Labor Day I actually wanna do something to honor labor because Labor Days come and go and we never think about labor. Run with a hammer. <laughs> Anyway, that was my Labor Day. What did you guys do?
2: So, guys, I did something amazing. I don't mean to, like, always top, like, you know, always, like, best you guys, like, when I went to Israel and you guys just, like, went to Cape Cod, but I went to the mikvah, not for me, to meet a listener who was going to the Beit Din and then to the mikvah. Celine Alderman posted in the group very casually after the episode where I put my mezuzah up. She says, I love this. I'm going to put up my first mezuzah this Thursday after my Beit Din and mikvah. And, of course... I was just like, OMG, where where, where are you? Where mikvah, mikvah alert. And she was like, I'm going to the Upper West Side, that really fancy mikvah. And Love Basically, that mikvah. Josh and I were like, Can we <laughs> basically Josh like messaged her privately? And can was we insert like, ourselves into the Josh motion. was like, hey, hey
1: Josh here, can I come to your mikvah? So
2: last Wednesday, I went to the Upper West Side Mikvah and standing outside was Celine Alderman in this beautiful Tallis, and she her family was there. So I ran up to her standing outside looking like glowing and magnificent with her hair, her hair wet from the spa-like environs.
0: Glistening with Judaism.
2: And I stuck a recorder I stuck a mic, in her face. mic in her
1: face. This is like Super Bowl like, Celine, yeah. so <laughs> you just won Judaism. How do you
0: feel? Like,
3: I'm Whoa. going to Disneyland.
0: <laughs> no more bacon cheeseburgers for
3: me. I'm
2: going to bars. But yeah, it was really special to be part, to be this like little fly on the wall of her experience. That's amazing. And here's a little bit of what she had to say. My name is Celine Alderman and I just became a Jew. Yay! <laughs> you look beautiful. You're wearing your tallest. You have you. a nice a beautiful dress on. You have that like mikvah hair. Yes, I do have the mikvah hair. And so Talkings, you do the first and then mm-hmm. you go into the mikvah and then yes. when you come out just like how what do you feel like? Great. Yeah, it was awesome. because <laughs> um, they allowed my family to stand right outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so they got to hear the mikvah dunks and everything and It was lovely. And just walking out and seeing all the people I love. Yeah, because my rabbi was there, one of my other favorite rabbis, she was there, Mm -hmm. my dad, stepmom, everybody. Do you feel different? Yes and no. I've been living it for a year during studies, and now I'm just, it's official. It just, it feels official.
1: (laughs) Welcome home, Celine.
0: Liel, what's up with you?
1: How can I top this? Nope, you can't. You went to the fight. you ran a half marathon. Here's what I did. I got back to New York.
0: <laughs> From Cape Cod. You
1: know, I had a week and I was I was like loving all of humanity and feeling that the world was just fine and, and everything was nice. And then I drove back and there's a a rat the size of like a Dodge Charger <laughs> standing right outside the building. And I'm like walking to it and expecting it to, you know, scurry along because it should be afraid of me. And it was just looking at me and going like, Sup. Like, welcome back. You live here. I'm choked on you.
2: He's like, you think you're going to wear white pants after Labor Day? That's
1: right. He was judging me.
0: New York's a tough place. It's a tough, tough place. You know what else is tough? Being orthodox and single and having to use apps like the one that let its data get dumped all over the internet. In the news of the Jews this week, I'm just going to read here from the New York Post earlier this week, matchmaker, matchmaker, don't steal my dating profile. Strong lead from uh, the New York Post. That was the original song. A new service to help Orthodox Jews make love connections posted unauthorized profiles of hundreds of singles, exposing their private information to would-be suitors. The matchmaking group based in Far Rockaway. First of all, note to all of you, don't use a matchmaking app that is based in Far Rockaway. It's called (laughs) Shittacline. I love the judginess. It's called Shittacline WhatsApp. It even managed to get tax-exempt status from the IRS. They certainly should not be allowed to conduct business under a charity status, said Rina Baracha Platt, 27, a California transplant living in Israel who said her outdated profile was posted without her consent. So this story is very weird. But basically what it seems like is uh, a lot of religious Jews who have these kind of uh, these these what are called shidduch resumes. I've seen shidduch resumes. They're sort of super detailed, super robust dating app profiles. Like they go beyond just, you know, how observant are you? Proficient in
1: Microsoft
0: Word and making cholent. Right, exactly. Exactly. And they, this, this should decline posted them publicly. So it's not even that they were matching this one with this one or you had to pay to get to see it. It's like anyone who logged into Shittacline, those millions of people have to be browsing Shittacline could see their...
2: It's very weird. Exposing posing the weird.
0: darkest secrets. The darkest secrets. Commu- I mean, it's
2: also crazy because like for a community that's so obsessed with, you know, the stringent rules, like you have to meet in a public place. You you know, there's no, no touching holding hands, things like that. Right. It's like you would expect from your dating service provider that like a little bit of A discretion. little discretion.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: See, but I'm
1: really into industry- in whatever some of the secrets that were exposed yeah like, what, do, what you, do you think were some of the darkest kind of most difficult things like those like, weird like- sometimes i go all the way up to the air roof and i just put like one finger out <laughs> just to defy the rules <laughs> i didn't really like season two of Shtissel. <laughs> like really what what are-
0: <laughs> i can't do the six strand challah <laughs> I've been trying. My That's actually like
1: been really me. disqualifiable. I only, right, I only do three.
0: I only do three. Four max. Four for circular, four for Yuntif. Anyway. I, I, I buy my chal and
2: <laughs> What this highlights though is that the fact that WhatsApp is like the app of choice for religious Jews. I think it's like Probably like seventy percent of their business is all WhatsApp. They so love
1: WhatsApp. Views. I think in the entirety of the state of Israel is based on like WhatsApp. I think the Israeli government right now doesn't meet anymore. I think they're all they just on WhatsApp. WhatsApp.
0: And there are very religious communities where they don't want people to have desktop computers or don't right. want them to be online, That's but they all have. Solution. But they all have phones. That's right. So it's like, and somehow the 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 rabbanim gadolim, the big the big macher rabbis, haven't figured out that this is a cheat, or do they not care? Oh
1: no, it's a, it's not a cheat.
0: It's great. It's, it's like communication.
1: You could, have, you could have a kosher phone, which by the way. We all should have a kosher phone because that just gets you off the internet. No you porn. What does it's it do? A, no Twitter, no Facebook. Oh, no apps. No, just just like messaging. Is it a flippy things. phone? No, no. It's like a smartphone. You could go you get them in Brooklyn.
0: Or in Israel, <laughs>
1: <laughs> wherever kosher phones are sold, and it's just like all the communications app, like WhatsApp, that you could actually talk to people, but none of the, the social
0: media time waster, garbage that destroys. Do you your have soul in your brain.
2: No, but I really kind of want. I
0: one. think you should. I Does want. Does it you to also leave? shut
2: down on Friday nights? I think. I'm sure that, that hack exists,
0: to do, right? To do that exactly. That yeah. hack must e- Liel you should get a kosher phone I think I should that blocks you and that you should lead the kosher phone lifestyle
2: I could hear the op-ed already I went kosher and then got a kosher
1: phone (laughs) (laughs) keeping
2: kosher was easy getting a kosher phone was not
0: getting kosher phone would be much easier than keeping kosher also in news of the Jews last week we talked about that case of uh, the musical falsettos being cast in England in the west end of London with an all-Gentile cast and was this appropriate would this uh, you know would it be legal to only cast Jews in America we examined that from many different angles this generated much attention much attention and and we'll get to some of that in the mailbox but um it, it it seems to have been fate that valerie harper died this week valerie harper of course is the gentile famous for playing many many parts but uh, among others Rhoda Morgenstern, uh the jewish friend of the mary tyler moore character on the mary tyler moore show and then on her own spin-off and you know several listeners wrote in to say well there's your answer right i mean let us let the universe remind you that there's a gentile who really knew how to play jewish she was accepted as this jewish character nobody seemed to have a problem with it and and obviously that's an important point to remember. So as we bid farewell to Valerie Harper, a a fabulous actress, we also remember she did our people proud. It did get me wondering, are there other examples of Gentile actors thoroughly inhabiting a Jewish role so perfectly that just n- nobody would ever doubt it?
2: Look, I think Rita Rosnahan is now the standard bearer for this because she does- Mrs. Maisel. Mrs. Maisel. She does such a good job as Midge. And it's it's a little campy in the way that the whole show is campy, but you buy it. I yeah. mean, if you think about it too much, you're kind of like, oh, this this is weird. <laughs> Maybe this is weird. But- um. I think she just really, really crushes it.
0: I was trying to remember who some of the actors were in Chariots of Fire who played the the Jewish uh distance runners. I don't think that anyone ever doubted that they their veracity in those roles, but of course I can't remember them. So maybe that's a like bad example. Ben Kingsley as Itzhak
1: Stern in Schindler's list, right? The Ur victim saved by the Christian Messiah, yep. Oscar Schindler. Yep. Yep. A- and then Ben Kingsley also as Eichmann as Eichmann just, right. just he to bring can do it
2: all but it's kind of like to bring balance of the force. F. Murray Abraham is, is playing like always these like swarthy Jewish characters right. even right. like Tony Shalhoub on uh, Maisel also is like very convincing as the Jewish dad
0: I mean people think F. Murray Abraham can play them because his name is F. Murray Abraham yeah. and they yes, figure he must be Jewish which he's not but it, it it's true he gets those roles who else anyone else we can think of this is definitely one for the J. Crew yeah uh, tell us your guys, favorite guys 914-570-4869 or write to us at Orthodox at tabletmag.com. Tell us about your favorite, your most convincing Gentiles in Jewish roles. Oh, I just had one. In Harold and Kumar, when they <laughs> bump in, <laughs> I swear this drops Welcome down. listeners to Mark's there's, inner world. There's a moment before they go out to White, for their night at White Castle where they... They're like smoking a menorah bong. And I think one of the guys, they're smoking with two Jews. One is David one Krumholtz. One is David Krumholtz. But who's the other?
2: Eddie K. Thomas. Eddie K.
0: Thomas from uh, American hey, Pie, who I don't believe is Jewish, but in... Now, he might be, but Eddie K. Thomas and David Krumholtz play like the super bro He
2: was born to a Jewish family in Staten Island. Fuck, I thought I had
0: a... I thought <laughs> I had a Gentile. Had and I thought it was from deep in the recesses of American filmdom. Oh, well. Look, there was a U.S. Army commander... Back to the real news of the Jews here, people. <laughs> (laughs) U.S. Army commander suspended after he used Arbeit Macht frei, the the phrase emblazoned on the gates above Auschwitz, in a memo. What the heck was this story?
2: I have to say, this is a JTA article, and not to throw shade, Auschwitz has been spelled wrong in this headline for a week now. (laughs) It's A U S C H W T I Z. And I'm just like, they're going to fix it, right? It's spelled Auschiz. So like, they, they ush- spelled ush- tiz. Tiz. The this whiz like, at This Auschwitz. is like a
1: greatest act of anti Semitism than actually writing Arbat Fry. Like in a they memo. got
2: Arbat Machfrei right. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> at least he spelled it
1: right. The Jewish
0: J-T-A. Telegraphic Agency misspelled Auschtfiz. So,
2: this is what the article says. I didn't actually read after the Oush-t-hiz. misspelling, but I'll read it now. The commander, whose name and unit have not been released, used the phrase to headline a section of the memo that explains incentives, including time off available to recruiters to pay Depending on the number of contracts that they are able to complete basically so, he's saying like work sets you free guys yeah. work harder recruit more people
0: and you'll get a, a day off
2: it is kind of funny well, if you get more people
1: into our <laughs> camp yeah you will have some time off or <laughs> font is a hundred people in the camp.
2: I mean, I think this but says Tuesday. to not to put a rosy glow on this, but like this says how good of a job we've done at like making this phrase part of something you everyone just knows this phrase. Because we, we build
1: the brand, is what you're saying. It's a fair point. brand awareness.
2: <laughs> no, it's like this is, you know, like never forget, never again. Yeah, he
0: didn't really forget. Know. So US Army commanders <laughs> work making you free, baby. I think peak news of the Jews this week is that the small Pacific island of Nauru. Now, if there's a Nauruvian who wants to write in and tell me that I mispronounced that, please do, because I want to get Nauru right. Cue, cue the Chabad rabbi on Nauru being like, well, <laughs> so, if you're ever in town for Shabbos. <laughs> um, this is a fabulous. Give you a coconut challah. They recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Nauru did. I just want to give you the headline um, from the Times of Israel. Nauru, world's, quote, least visited country, unquote, recognizes (laughs) Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Subhead, Foreign Minister Katz, praises move by tiny Pacific Island nation, expresses hope more countries will follow suit.
2: (laughs) So what does this actually mean in practice? To be the world's
0: least visited
2: country? No, I know what that means. But basically, like, what? so they are recognizing it. Does it mean anything?
0: I mean if it's if if it's certain countries it means if it's France it means they're moving their embassy. If it's Nauru,
1: pre the US embassy move, it would have been like huge news cuz like almost no one did it. Now it's like, hey thanks Nauru.
0: Thanks Nauru. We're down with you. Also in the news of the Jews this week, uh, an item we rejected but now relevant is that the Hawaiian island of Kauai has its first rabbi or has a rabbi again leading to me thinking maybe I can expense a trip to Kauai to visit the Jewish community and their new rabbi and then to Nauru to thank them personally for moving the capital which I'm not even sure is the right thing to do I haven't put a lot of deep thought into it very
2: important to do that
0: I do want to get to Nauru
2: I'm glad you're really getting to the bottom of this
0: friends send us your thoughts on where Nauru should move
2: friends next year in Nauru move your embassies <laughs> next year in Jerusalem. Nauru Our first Jewish guest this week is Adina Sussman. She's a food writer and cookbook author. She's collaborated on cookbooks with Chrissy Teigen, and her own cookbook is out now. It is out today. It's called Sababa, Fresh, Sunny Flavors from My Israeli Kitchen.
3: Hello. Shalom. Hello. Shalom from Israel and New York.
2: Okay. We have you here. It's your pub day. It's an amazing, exciting cookbook. What is Sababa? Sababa. Sababa the word or sababa the cookbook?
3: Maze
1: sababa.
2: sababa. Sababa. It's it's good to finally have someone here who can explain Hebrew words to me. It's derived from an Arabic word which
3: my friend Osama Dalal who's an Arab chef who has a recipe in the book explained to me actually means it's actually the highest form of love in Arabic but in Hebrew it's been sort of slangified to mean everything's cool, everything's awesome. So like it can answer a million questions. So you say, oh, guess what? I got this for half off, Sababa. Listen, I'm not really in the mood to go to this, the beach tonight, Sababa. You know, it's it's an, it's an a catch all for everything's cool, everything's good. Um, and about six months ago, I started seeing Sababa t-shirts pop up in Shuka Carmel where I live. I was like-
1: It's Hebrew for all right, all right, all right. All
3: right, all right, all right. So
0: if I know Shalom, Yofi and Sababa,
3: you're good. I'm, you're good
0: I'm good you, for a week in you, Israel. If
3: you add a yala in there, yala,
0: like, okay. let's go, then you're, bay. you're golden. Got Just it. repeat. Repeat.
2: So what is Sababa the cookbook? Sababa it's, all the, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good.
0: All good.
3: Sababa is my interpretation of Israeli cuisine through the eyes of an American living in Israel who had a lot of experience eating and cooking Israeli food, but moved there about three or four years ago. And... Decided that I wanted to share how I perceive all the Israeli ingredients, how I perceive the cooking culture in Israel, and sort of how I filter it through my suburban American upbringing.
1: As the resident morbidly obese uh, <laughs> member of the crew and someone who, who sets I, th- great I thought you were going to say Israeli. Sits <laughs> great store by, by all things food and all things Israeli and all things Israeli food.
3: I will say you're as tan as the tannest Israeli. You look. Summary from, from, from
0: Massachusetts.
1: As
3: obese as the <laughs>
0: obesest American, um, as tan as the tanest Israeli. <laughs> it's it's li- 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 Can eat a whole plate of hummus in one sitting. <laughs> Yalla,
3: sababa. Um,
1: the book is unbelievable. Everyone should buy this book right now. If if you only have one <laughs> Israeli cookbook, wow, uh, get this book. It's a Thank fantastic you. book.
0: As the resident non-foodie here, (laughs) raised as my fans- As a
1: person who eats at Friendly's As my fans can tell
0: you, raised on Domino's Pizza and Friendly's. What is Israeli cuisine? Like, take me beyond falafel and hummus and to someone like, you know, someone out there ordering Domino's right now, and they know Italian equals red, Southern Italian equals red sauce. What's Israeli?
3: By the way, I can totally see it in a matter of years, the Domino's Shakshuka pizza. Hey. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised. I think Israeli food, I mean, there are a lot of debate and discussion about what Israeli food. It is. To me, it's really the fusion of Eastern European and North African and Sephardic traditions fused with the many other immigrant traditions that are in Israel and combined with a lot of improvisation entrepreneurial spirit, I would say, of Israelis in the way that they sort of will try anything and see what sticks to the wall. To me, it's very sunny. It's very spicy. It's very focused around the idea of Shabbat, whether it's Shabbat or not. It's preparing things in advance so that if people can come over, you have something ready like salatim or salads or a long-cooked dish. It's a lot about hospitality uh, it's it's as much a vibe and a feeling as as a dish. I would so say. So
1: speaking of vibes and feelings, uh-huh. I, I, I want to start in in a place where I learned to cook, I mean, uh-huh. where, where I kind of got my my start, and where you're fortunate enough to live, and which I think inspires a lot yes. of this book. Tell us about Chuka
3: I actually lived in Israel for five years after college and lived in Jerusalem. And, you know, Machane Yehuda in Jerusalem has now, I'd say, outstripped the Carmel market in Tel Aviv as sort of the marquee market of Israel. It's it's been renovated. It's got an awning on the top. So if it rains, Ooh. you don't know, get flooded. You know, it's, it's got some an climate awning. control. Chuka Carmel is still the down and dirty shook of Tel Aviv, and that is what I love about it the most. It's really close to the beach. It has a lot of Arab vendors in the shook, so there's a real sort of daily commercial coexistence that I really enjoy. It's kind of rough around the edges. There's You smell raw chicken in one aisle. You hear people yelling about the price of mangoes in another. There aren't a million uh, boutique burger shops and fish and chip places. It's changing, but it's still a place that thousands of people go every day to buy all of their produce, all of their meat. Um, It's right on the edge of the Yemenite quarter, so it has an amazing feeling of... Uh, old Tel Aviv still to this day. And it's, it's magical.
2: So if you go there on a typical weekday, like what are you picking up?
3: Well, as you saw, Stephanie, not a mere <laughs> two weeks ago, I literally live a one minute walk it's from true. the Shuk. So, you know, if I need a toothpick, I'll make an excuse to run into the Shuk. It's, it's really a place that uh, anchored me when I moved to Israel, although I speak the language, I know the culture. I understand Israel. For me, the minute I got to Shuka Carmel and my husband found us an incredible apartment there, uh, I felt at home in Israel. So it's a place that I go to both check in sort of spiritually. I'd say that the Carmel Market is my spiritual home in Israel as opposed to the Kotel in Jerusalem for many people. But I'm buying... All of my steaks, if we're grilling, I'm buying spice blends, I'm buying produce in season. I'm also schmoozing with my favorite vendors to ask them how to make something or what their family story is or how their weekend was or what the weather's like. It's really, you know, for someone who Works from home. And even and, if
1: you don't ask, they'll tell you.
3: <laughs> they will tell you, and they'll have a lot of opinions about whether you gained a pound or lost a pound, or if you look tired, or what's going on, or we heard you're writing a cookbook. Am I in it? We you take my picture? <laughs> yeah. You
2: know, so yeah. Can we talk about tahina and tahini? We can. It's in the book. I went to, I actually made yesterday (gasps) the tahini smoothies Ah. from this book. I didn't have dates or something else that I needed, but it was still pretty good. (laughs) How was it? It was good. And I put the walnuts in. That was really exciting. And the sea salt, like that was Mm. unexpected.
3: Salt is the essential ingredient in all foods, including sweet foods. Salt brings out the sweetness and it also just provides a little structure to almost every recipe.
1: What's wrong with Americans that they don't get the genius of tahina?
3: What is it, first of all, tahina <laughs> like, or tahini? Are is, they the same thing?
0: Because they, I've seen them sold under both names.
3: They are the same thing. Uh, tahini is actually more closer to the original Arabic word for tahina. Um, it's pure ground sesame paste, essentially. Israel, uh, after China, is the Largest consumer uh, per capita of sesame seeds in the world, there are dozens of sesame seed brokers whose only job is to import the finest sesame seeds from Humera, which is a very fertile region in Ethiopia. And it's ground; most of it is ground into tahina by Arab and Palestinian manufacturers um, and sold to Israelis who use it. Also, tahina is an essential ingredient in hummus. So every plate of hummus you're eating is has a pretty substantial amount of tahina in it. And the new trend in Israel is people ask you like, how do you like your hummus? 30, 40, or 50? So it's like about the percentage of tahina in relation to the percentage of What's <laughs> <Wow. prices. Wow. laughs> the right answer, according to you? Well, which is the right answer? I would say 30, which is a substantial ratio, is considered light in Israel and for the sort of faint of heart. And I have a recipe for hummus from HaKosem, which is an iconic... Falafel. Falafel and hummus and shawarma joint. And Rx hummus actually has more tahina than hummus in volume. (laughs) And he describes the texture of the finished product as buttercream frosting, just to give you an idea of the, the silkiness and the texture. But tahina has a lot of other uses, and I think it's a good object lesson in how I view cooking. So yes, I'll put it in smoothies, which Nathan Englander said he tried first when he got the cookbook and was gracious enough to write a nice little blurb for me. I like it a lot in sweet foods. I have a tahina
2: caramel tart in the back. And the
1: smoothies t- is like the tahina gateway drug then for for people or not. Well,
2: just like instead of using almond butter, you use tahina, and it has like such an interesting flavor. I actually think
3: Americans once they are exposed to it actually. You know, we're a country who love uh, people who love peanut butter, and Israel. Ironically, Israelis hate peanut butter or have hated it, even though Bamba, which is a peanut butter flavored snack, is like the national chocolate like, snack. It's like
0: puffy peanut butter. That's <laughs> it's, what it it's is. All
3: of this—that's where you guys are. Like you're feeding me all the right questions. It's all about how <laughs> you perceive ingredients and how you view them. So. You know, I didn't really think there was going to be any interest in this book from Israelis because, you know, what what does an American woman have to say about this cuisine? But several publications have written about me because they think it's interesting that I would put Trina in caramel or that I would make a boreka with sweet potatoes and kashkaval as opposed to like a savory potato filling. And I think that what I want to encourage people to do is to take these staple ingredients and improvise, use them in ways that are flavorful and delicious and easy. You know, what I like about Israeli cuisine is you can throw something together really quickly if you have a few staple ingredients around, and that's that's what I'm trying to encourage people to do. So
2: I was at the grocery store yesterday looking for tahini, yes. as we call it here in America. Mm-hmm. Is there a good brand? There's like a Brad's organic. I mean, there's it's all sorts of yes. stuff now. So what do you what do you tell us? What should we get so, from the grocery store? My favorite
3: tahina is not available in every grocery store. It's sum tahina. It's um, made in Israel by, um, but it's imported by three sisters, uh, the Zittelman sisters. Sounds like an old vaudeville act, but uh, and it's Shooky
0: it's, pearl, S O O M, SD, <laughs> exactly.
3: Um, but you know, until you, I mean, I, Stephanie, I don't know if you remember the the can of Joyva tahina. Of it's course. A, the orange can where. The tahina, by the time it got to the store, was already probably six months old. And then by the time you got it home, it was like a layer of cement sludge on the <laughs> bottom with a, a very lovely pool of oil on the top. And stirring it together and you know, incorporating it was almost impossible. Now... That's what we buy. Joyva? Joyva, yeah. Okay, so I would... No, enc- but that's okay.
0: I'm not, I, as I said, so I'm, I'm I am I want to get this stuff wrong. I encourage you yeah.
3: to buy the Whole Foods house brand, which is decent and made in Israel. But now, actually, several of the brands of Arab and Palestinian tahina are being imported and are available on Amazon and even in some markets. There's uh, one called Al-Arz, which is made by a family outside of Nazareth. They recently in- increased the size of their factory. And there's another one called Har which is made by um, the Samaritan community um, and is an excellent china. And you'll notice. Which is
1: what, by the way, literally half of my suitcase every time I travel back from Israel is halbracha or hayonat
0: If there are American families out there that are not adept with mm-hmm. cooking. Israeli cuisine, but they love the sound of this book and they're going to buy it and they want to try three or four recipes before it ends up on that shelf. You know the shelf. Everyone has the shelf of like 80 cookbooks none of which gets used.
3: I know the shelf. You have well. that. We
0: all have that shelf. What are three or four recipes that are just, you know, like Liel said, that if the smoothie is for some, the smoothie with tahina is going to be the gateway drug. For others, what?
3: So I would encourage people to make a few of the condiments that are in the beginning of the book because those lead to the making of dozens of recipes. So there's a 24-hour preserved lemon paste where you basically take lemons, chop them up, cure them with salt, add jalapenos and garlic. It's a recipe that a chef friend of mine from a steakhouse called M25 gave me that I adapted for the book. You know, preserved lemons are intimidating. You know, sometimes you know you see something you wanna eat you say, oh, great, it require, I'm gonna make homemade preserved lemons. And then you realize that it takes two weeks to three right. months for them to cure. So I like that this is sort of a quick hack that gives you that same lemony punch, but it even has a little, I really like the zestiness of lemons and the rind, and you still get a lot of that sharpness. So I would make that. Then you can spread that on sandwiches. You can stir it into labneh yogurt. You can um, spread it on salmon and roast it. So that's one that I would encourage people to make. Schug, um, which... Are you guys all familiar with Zug? Can you which, spell that for us? Many <laughs> pronunciations. Like I'm. Z s- H
0: So
3: the, so. S c h u g. So the strangest spelling, which is the one that I've seen a lot, is z h u g Which okay. I guess actually that sounds pretty good when I just said it, yeah. but so I you know s c h uh, u g is how I spell it in the book, but the ha is hard for a lot of us, but it's a Yemenite um, hot sauce that's made with a lot of fresh herbs. So. So not only are you getting the spice from a ton of hot peppers and a lot of garlic, which enhances everything, you're getting a lot of really bright and beautiful cilantro and parsley. And if you don't like cilantro, you can swap in more parsley. Um, and um, I put a little bit of cardamom in my schrug uh, and also a little bit of lemon juice. And it's just, it's this incredible condiment. I have a recipe for. Um, schrug marinated lamb chops so like you just take the lamb chops slather in there with some fresh mint and then grill them you can you know i also have a really good pesto recipe like you could buy a store-bought pesto and stir a little schrug into it and it just makes so much sense all of a sudden you've got all these herbs playing together well and i make like a really simple ricotta dumpling tossed in this schrug pesto so like those are just a couple of examples
1: if you're looking for a way to welcome in the new year <laughs> this this really
0: only one book you need so. baba
2: that's Sababa, Sababa. Sababa. Sababa
0: New Year. Adina Sussman, thank you for being.
2: Adina Sababa Sussman? Did you just say thank you for being, not even for so being <laughs> here? I, I love that.
3: that. Thank, thank you for
1: being our for Jew of the
0: Week.
3: It's a, I, my honor to be. <laughs> yeah, it is
0: Some would say thank you for being our Jew of the Week. We just say thank you for being.
3: It's a pleasure to be.
2: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson in JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing, and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous harosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive.
1: mailbox got a letter in the mailbox got a letter in the mailbox mailbox unorthodox at tabletmag.com that's unorthodox at t-a-b-l-e-t-m-a-g.com
0: to the mailbox hello mark stephanie and liel a listener writes i recently met some of my boyfriend's new co-workers who grew up all over the u.s We were discussing accents, and one person observed that I had a, quote, Jewish accent. Is this an okay thing to say to someone? He didn't say that I sound Israeli. I don't. Or like a New Yorker. My family's from New York, but I grew up outside Philadelphia. He said I sounded Jewish. What does it mean to sound Jewish? Does it mean affective and from New York City? And is it acceptable to say that someone has a Jewish accent? I'd love to hear your take on this. Warm regards, Rachel. Well, I wrote back to her, and I will tell you what I told her. But does either of you have thoughts first?
2: I don't like this friend. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's like, You look Jewish. Just kidding. No, it's like when people tell me that I don't have a Long Island accent and they mean it as a compliment. Yeah, there's I'm no good like, answer what? to that. They're like
1: Although I at least Long Island is like coded for
0: <laughs> Jew. So I do. At least someone took Jewish. the
1: trouble to be like, Yeah, your Long Island accent, I suppose, is not showing right now.
0: What I wrote to Dearest Rachel was, no, it's not an okay thing to say to someone you're not very close <laughs> with. Like there's, there's, it sounds creepy, skeevies, squeezy, squeechy, I would say. Um, a, a, t- a tad anti-Semitic. It sounds a tad. T- problematic. T- now, but this is one of those things. If ever there's a subject that is okay to talk about among friends, but less okay to talk about with someone you've just met over matcha at the at Central confused. Perk.
1: What, what is a Jewish accent. Well,
0: we've discussed this on our show. We've had a couple linguists on. We've had John McWhorter and Sarah Ben-Or who have both said, uh, talked about various... So there is, for example, from speak that in Yeshivish communities right. and ultra-orthodox communities they have all these. First of all, they have a, a kind of accent, um, a, a rhythm, but and that's then they, not what he's talking. And about. then they also right. have these these loan words from Hebrew and from Yiddish and stuff. But also, um, there is a kind of um, there's the cooperative overlapping, the inter the propensity to interrupt. But those are patterns. That's not an accent. I think that if we got them back on the show, they would say that there is a kind of um, sing-songy tone that some Jews, non-observant, non-orthodox Jews, not even from New York. Have another thing I'll point out is that people from like Toronto and Melbourne say that in their home countries, the Jews there do sound different from often if they grew up in the Jewish neighborhoods from the 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 Anglo Australians or Canadians.
2: I think that Rachel should break up with everyone involved. I agree. I I agree.
0: And yet there's not nothing to it. All right. On to the voicemails. Here's a voicemail we got from a couple guys who seem to be driving on I-90 on their way back to Ithaca, and they dropped us this voicemail. Hi, North.
1: Um, we're driving up from New York.
0: And we're going back to university um, in Cornell, and we wanted to invite you guys, if you'd like to be the scholars and residents
1: for the uh, Center for Jewish Living, a Jewish community in Cornell. We'd love to have you come and dispel some of your Jewish wisdom that you've accumulated over the years. And, yeah, if you guys are interested, we'd really love to have you.
4: Uh, Look forward to hearing from you. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Love you guys. Love
2: you guys. Bros, we are happy to do it. (laughs) Bring us up there. (laughs)
1: Ithaca is gorgeous. (laughs) I hear. And I'm in.
0: Do you feel this is basically them saying, we will smoke you out with the biggest shofar bong Ever, If I, you drop by for Shabbos dinner. Only one way to find out.
2: <laughs> this next one comes from Tablet's executive editor, Wayne Hoffman, who schools us a little bit on something we said last week.
4: Hey, Unorthodox. Longtime listener, big fan, Wayne Hoffman calling. Also, the host, you might know me as um, your boss. Loved your chat about falsettos and the Jew face controversy in England. Uh, but I wanted to offer one quick ad. Uh, When you talked about James Lapine writing the show, we really should have mentioned William Finn, who wrote all the music for the show and the lyrics. Fantastic composer. Had the pleasure of interviewing him in Tablet when the show came back to Broadway a couple years ago. You should go check out that story if you haven't already. He talked about his very first musical written in Hebrew when he was a kid. Um, But as long as we're talking about falsettos being performed with a non-Jewish cast, I wanted to share one of the many productions I've seen was 1998's production in New York by the National Asian American Theater Company with an all-Asian cast performing Falsetto Land, uh, including Anne Harada, who some of you might know from Avenue Q. It was a fantastic production, and I believe 100% non-Jewish. Doesn't have to be Jewish to work, still worked. See you all in the office.
0: The only answer to that is yes, sir. Yes, yeah. boss. Whatever <laughs> boss you yes, man, say, whatever you say, sir. Jew of the week, Benjamin Cohen, a former Jew of the week, w- once and ever Jew of the week, uh, calls back with uh, Jew a, of every week. A thought on the falsettos discussion of who can play Jews, who can play non-Jews.
4: Uh, hey, it's former Jew of the week, Benjamin Cohen. Hope you're doing well. I was just listening to the most recent episode, and I wanted to weigh in on one thing. You guys mentioned Daniel Radcliffe uh, from Harry Potter.
0: Uh, he played a Jew with the uh, beat poet, Allen Ginsberg, but he also played against type. He played an Israeli, uh, a real-life Israeli adventurer who went in the Amazon jungle. And uh, I think that movie was called
4: Jungle. So not only has he played a Jew, but he's actually played an Israeli. Talk to you guys later. Bye.
0: Well, the more Daniel Radcliffe, the better, since apparently I look just like him, as we mm-hmm. discussed. <laughs> so the more. <laughs> Sorry,
2: guys, I spit all over your microphone. Uh... The
0: more Daniel Radcliffe, the better.
2: And more about London's casting drama from a nice fellow Brit. Brit podcaster.
5: Britcaster. Hi, I just wanted to get in touch about the falsettos issue. My name's Hayden Cohen. I'm a writer, performer and host of an obviously inferior UK-based Jewish magazine podcast, The Bagel. In the UK, all us Jews are currently rather tense and reactive. It sometimes means we can find a fence where none is intended. Whilst I'd love to support the whole Jew-face thing because I could do with some of that sweet West End money, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. It's called acting and is preserving our stories rather than erasing Jewish identity. Jewish jobs, maybe, but I'd be horrified if I was only ever allowed to write or perform Jewish material. That being said, care should always be taken to treat communities and cultures with respect. I'm more cautious about having a non-Jewish director, as I'm not sure anyone non-Jewish can truly get the essence of what it is to be hidden, but I'm happy to be proved wrong. Different to being from any other ethnic minority, thankfully, as an Ashkenazi Jew, I can pass myself off as any manner of white character, of which there are plenty. Anyway, those are my thoughts for what they're worth. Thank you for that wisdom from across
0: the pond. If you have wisdom for and us And for your hosts, Jewish
5: accent. If you want to. Is s-
0: that what it was? Is that what it was? Was that his Jewish accent? It was the New West End Synagogue accent. It was the Bayswater Knightsbridge Golden Green accent. If you want to school us, 914-570-4869.
2: We have a book, The newest Jewish Encyclopedia, From Abraham to Zabar's and Everything in Between. Comes out October 1st. Pre-order it today. We are doing a very fun giveaway contest. If you pre-order the book now, you will be entered to win a Zabar's gift basket. Zabars is the appetizing shop with bread and coffee and everything. They make these amazing gift baskets, and we are giving away three to three lucky pre orderers are
0: we going to stuff the book in the gift basket? Is that what's good? They're going to get like the appetizing, the coffee, the bread. It's going to
2: be like locks is going to be like in between the different pages. Got it. Well, they'll get the book separately because oh, this right. is going to but this is going to happen separately. But they can then they slice, can then
0: slice locks yeah, into the pages they can take, like, of a rip
2: out pages and make them like part of the appetizing sounds platter. Delicious. So all you have to do is pre-order the book wherever you want to do that at your local bookshop at one of the behemoth uh, online retailers and forward a screenshot or the email receipt to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and you'll be automatically entered to win a Zabar's gift basket. And you'll get one of those Zabar's mugs, which is just like the best.
0: Newest Jewish encyclopedia soon by you this holiday season. Along with the book comes a live tour, not just some live shows, but a whole tour. We're rocking North America and maybe other countries. The season kicks off September 19th with a free show in Stamford, Connecticut. Our guests are none other than super duper Jewy Rabbi Jew, Joseph Telushkin. And our Gentile of the week is Farouk Katwari, who is the chief executive officer of Ethan Allen Furniture, and he's a Muslim immigrant, very involved in interfaith work. Rabbi Telushkin, CEO Katwari, Stamford, Connecticut, what could be better? This is a mix of live shows with the three of us and also some dates that just have one of us or two of us or the other two of us or the other two of us. And we are coming to cities like Detroit, San Diego,
2: Denver. We're doing a mix of live shows and just author appearances where one or two of us will be. So we are getting we're Phoenix. getting to Boca, Naples, We're
0: doing
1: Boca Boston. and Naples. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we're going everywhere. Paris, London. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: the A1A in Florida, the Pacific Coast Highway in Cali, the Loop in Chicago. We're going to be in San Francisco francisco september 23rd with barry weiss uh it's insane how many launching
2: the book september 18th at the manhattan jcc yes you can get details and information about all of these events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live
0: what's that website again
2: tabletmag.com slash unorthodox (laughs) live
0: slash unorthodox live (laughs)
2: This might surprise you guys, but I have a life outside this podcast. What? Yeah, I host the Jewish Book Council's Unpacking the Book series at the Jewish Museum each spring. And I had an amazing conversation at one of those events with Danny Shapiro. She's a writer, she's a novelist, she's a memoirist, and her latest book is Inheritance. And it's basically about what happens when she takes a DNA test and discovers that the father... Who raised her is not her biological father. It's a deeply Jewish story. It's an amazing, crazy tale about her story and essentially how technology and our need for information is speeding up faster than our ability to process just what it is that we might find.
0: I have read about this book and it sounds crazy.
2: Here's my conversation with Danny Shapiro. Welcome. It's good to be here. Let's kick things off with a short reading from the beginning of the book, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, so this is
6: uh, just a very brief chapter at the opening of Inheritance. When I was a girl, I would sneak down the hall late at night once my parents were asleep. I would lock myself in the bathroom, climb onto the Formica counter, and get as close as possible to the mirror until I was nose-to-nose with my own reflection. This wasn't an exercise in the simple self-absorption of childhood. The stakes felt high. Who knows how long I kneeled there, staring into my own eyes. I was looking for something I couldn't possibly have articulated, but I always knew it when I saw it. If I waited long enough, my face would begin to morph. I was eight, 10, 13. Cheeks, eyes, chin, and forehead. My features softened and shape shifted until finally I was able to see another face, a different face, what seemed to me a truer face, just beneath my own. Now it is early morning, and I'm in a small hotel bathroom 3,000 miles from home. I'm 54 years old, and it's a long time since I was that girl. But here I am again, staring and staring at my reflection. A stranger stares back at me. The coordinates, I'm in San Francisco, Japantown to be precise, just off a long flight. The facts, I'm a woman, a wife, a mother, a writer, a teacher. I'm a daughter, I blink. The stranger in the mirror blinks too. A daughter. Over the course of a single day and night, the familiar has vanished. Familiar, belonging to a family. On the other side of the thin wall, I hear my husband crack open a newspaper. The floor seems to sway, or perhaps it's my body trembling. I don't know what a nervous breakdown would feel like, but I wonder if I'm having one. I trace my fingers across the planes of my cheekbones, down my neck, across my clavicle, as if to be certain I still exist. I'm hit by a wave of dizziness and grip the bathroom counter. In the weeks and months to come, I will become well acquainted with this sensation. It'll come over me on street corners and curbs, in airports, train stations. I'll take it as a sign to slow down. Take a breath. Feel the fact of my own body. You're still you, I tell myself. Again and again and
2: again. Will you tell us a little bit about your childhood in New Jersey? So I
6: was raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. An observant home. My father was from a prominent um, Orthodox family from New York City. His father uh, was one of the founders of Lincoln Square Synagogue, um, and his parents were, you know, sort of uh, very well known both in America and in Israel in the Orthodox community. Um, My mother was my father's third wife, uh, which was highly unusual. Um, It was, he was divorced um, in the Late 1940s, early 1950s, um, which was—can we all say it together? Ashonda, <laughs> come on, guys! And then he remarried, and he—he—I've written about this. I wrote a, an essay about this in the New Yorker years ago, called "The Secret Wife." He—he fell in love with a young woman, and he—they um, became engaged, and he found out on the eve of their wedding that she was dying. Um, She had um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which was a death sentence back then. She was 26 years old. Her parents hadn't told her um, this could happen back then, and they didn't tell him, and he found out, and he went forth and married her, and he was widowed within a year, and so by the time he met my mother, he had run out of orthodox women, let's just say, (laughs) Um, and my mother was decidedly not orthodox. She was a career girl. She, she was divorced. She'd been married 10 years with no children. And um, she agreed to become orthodox to marry my father. And the reason why this background is important is because then they moved to New Jersey, um, something for which I never forgave them. They chose between a townhouse on East 60-something Street and a house in Hillside, New Jersey. And... There they went because there was a synagogue in Hill, in Hillside um, with an Orthodox rabbi, and they within walking distance. My mother agreed to become Orthodox, but she was never Orthodox in her heart. Uh, in fact, she was an atheist, um, and she. Uh, so I was their only child, and they fought over me. Uh, I went to a Jewish day school until I was in seventh grade, and then I went to prep school. You know, my mother won like for part two of my childhood, and so it was a very complicated, confusing upbringing in terms of uh, belonging, Jewishness. There was always a sense that I had that there was a struggle between my parents that I didn't totally understand, um, and Hillside, New Jersey, was a interesting little complicated community because there were these Holocaust survivors who had moved there and made good and were prosperous and were building things, you know, building malls and buildings and shopping centers. And uh, then there were my parents who were Orthodox. Most of the Jews weren't Orthodox. And then there was this whole world of people who weren't so happy that Jews had moved in. So it was a very complicated place that I think also really informed a lot of my childhood.
2: And amidst that, you, you know, you described never quite feeling like you belonged within that Jewish community. It seems like everyone was telling you you didn't look Jewish all the time I don't understand this world where everyone just says that to you but it seems like that was happening and I'm so curious how that impacted your sense of self as as a young child
6: Yeah, so there's a moment in the book where it's Shabbos and my parents have friends over for lunch and these friends are much older than my parents and they are uh, they're survivors uh, and they're 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 having lunch their their last name is Kushner Um, future grandparents of Jared. And it was an enduring, like kind of a a childhood memory that became seared into my, um, my consciousness in a way. Mrs. Kushner, I came out to say hello to all the adults, and Mrs. Kushner kind of patted me on the head or grabbed my arm and she said, little blondie, we could have used you in the ghetto. You could have gotten us bread from the Nazis. And I was maybe four years old, five years old, I was very young. It stayed with me as a writer when I grew up, I wrote about it because I was haunted by it. But I thought I was haunted by it because um, it's an awful thing to say to a child. And I felt guilty and I felt well if I had been around then then I could have, I mean it it was putting something on me that wasn't mine to carry. But I came to understand that Mrs. Kushner, that it had different meaning, bigger meaning, greater meaning, that all of the times in my childhood, and really it was every day, that somebody said a version of this to me. Um, And then there was this, and I've also written about this in, in the book, but this very strange thing that I will never to my dying day fully understand, which is that I was the Kodak Christmas poster child. A portrait of me that my mother took me into the city to be taken became the poster, like in Grand Central Station, on the jumbotron, and like at, hanging on the wall at F A O Schwartz, wishing the entire world a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and it was like what I remember about it in my childhood was that it was sort of a joke. Like it was, isn't this hilarious that this Orthodox Jewish child with these impeccable Orthodox credentials is wishing the whole world a Merry Christmas? Isn't that funny? Um, which many years later, and in light of everything that I discovered, takes on some very, you know, layers of meaning.
2: So let's fast forward to you spitting into a tiny vial to do a DNA test on Ancestry.com. Why did you do that test?
6: It was nothing more than whimsy. Um, You know, the way that I've come to think of it these days is a lot of people... Do these DNA tests um, as sort of recreational DNA testing? You know, maybe we'll find out a little interesting fact about um, our, you know, some small sliver of our ethnicity, or we'll find some second or third cousins that we
2: didn't know about. I'm one percent North African. There you go. You, see, yeah. you had a good story. Ninety-seven percent Ashkenazi. Don't you, worry. You could be part of their ads. <laughs> like this is. So
6: um, my husband was interested in in doing it. He he just likes science and he's an early adopter of things and not even that this was that early. But it was right around the holidays when these companies uh, tend to drop their prices. So, that, so I'll just give you a statistic. Just last year, 12 million of these DNA kits were sold in the United States. Um, it's the most popular holiday gift. Um, <laughs> it is. Families give this gift to each other it's become like the Hanukkah and Christmas gift. You know, it's the stocking stuffer. It's the, um, and, and 2% of those 12 million people just last year discover um, what's known in that world as an NPE, which stands for not parent expected. So if we do the math, 2%, 2% of 12 million people is 240,000 people, and that is only last year. So there's a kind of epidemic going on that I ended up, I had no... There was no suspicion, there was no sense of any, I could so easily have said no, which I'm a little haunted by, because there was this tremendous secret that was locked away that doing that DNA test unlocked. And I could have spent my entire life as a memoirist, you know, digging into identity and into my family's history and into, in some way, always having the sense that there was something I didn't understand. All of my novels, all five of my novels, in one way or another, thematically center around family secrets and the corrosive power of secrets. I didn't know why. Um, And so, yeah, so my husband Michael just said, do you want to do this? And I said, sure. And he ordered the kits. They sat around for a while. Finally, one night after dinner, he said, okay, I'm going to open these, you know, spit. And, you know, he spit into the tube. And I I did. It meant nothing to me. Um, I kind of wondered whether... Maybe it wouldn't work because you know, maybe like the lamb chops would affect my, you know, or you know, or my lipstick or whatever. And um, and then we sent away. He 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 sent the kits off, and I did not
2: think about it again until the day they returned. Didn't give it a thought. And so, what happens when they get returned to you, the results? The first
6: thing that happens is that my breakdown of my ethnicity um, is uh, listed as. Eastern European Ashkenazi. Um, I just thought they made a mistake that there was somebody else out there that had switched vials with me and was also confused about her ethnicity and identity. Um, So I kind of packed that away. I really did. It was just like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Clearly, these tests just aren't reliable. Such was my certainty. Um, The next thing that happened... Because my husband, he's a former journalist, um, investigative journalist. He was like flashing red lights were starting to go on. And then, so he was keeping an eye on my Ancestry.com page. And for those of you, how many people here have done DNA testing? Just a show of hands. So um, so about 30%, I'm just going to say, 35%, which is probably about right. That makes sense. So for those of you who haven't, one of the things that happens is you... um you have the option of opting in, checking the box that says, um, I'd be interested in seeing other people who share DNA with me, or not. You can opt out, but most people who do these tests are interested in that, that's part of the recreation. I'll find the second and third cousins that way. So I had opted in, um, and um, a first cousin appeared on my page who was a complete stranger. And even then I just thought, well, this is really a mistake. I know all my first cousins. Um, there's also something on Ancestry where someone can administer someone else's page. So often a brother will do it for another brother, or a son will do it for a father, or a wife will do it for a husband. There was a name associated with this mystery first cousin. And my husband started digging into that name and trying to figure out who that person was. Um, and was hitting a dead end. So my dad had a child in his first marriage, much older half-sister, named Susie. I um, wrote Susie an email. We weren't close, we hadn't been in touch in a couple of years, but I had recalled that I, I thought she had done DNA testing. So I reached out to her and asked her if she had, and she had, and she sent me her results. And there is a site called JetMatch, where you can upload two kits to see how much DNA is shared between these two, these two people. Just with numbers and codes, it's all pretty coded. And that was the night that my life changed because um, it took a fraction of a second. Uh, Michael uh, uploaded our two kit numbers and it showed that we were not related. We weren't sisters, we weren't half sisters, we were no kind of sisters. I made him then go downstairs and call Ancestry.com <laughs> to get to the bottom of this mistake that they had made, and he was told that no mistake, no mistakes are made by these companies. The DNA doesn't—it just. They, can you imagine what would happen if they made mistakes? It wouldn't be the billion-dollar businesses that you know that they are. So, I understood at that moment that my dad hadn't been my biological father. I knew that he was Susie's. Uh, she looked like him. She sounded like him. She walked and talked like him. I was the one who had been told every day of my life, how'd you wander over from the Alps, Heidi? You know, <laughs> into, you know, like, how, like, what do you do? What's wrong with this picture? I knew.
2: And so I don't want to give away too much of what happens, but your parents had had fertility issues and had gone to a clinic in Philadelphia, and you basically pieced together who your sperm donor was, who the sperm donor was. And he's not Jewish, He's very much not Jewish. Um, your DNA was sort of like Western Europe, um, sort of what Heidi, basically. Um, and some of the first people you went to after this happened were, were Jewish leaders, were rabbis. And what did they say? Uh, how did they sort of help you make sense of this?
6: One of the things that I found so interesting, I mean, I, I launched myself into research mode for many reasons one was just to try to piece myself back together again because it's a very unsettling thing to be certain about your identity and then discover you were wrong um, the other reason in terms of urgency was that I realized that some of the people who might have any kind of answers or wisdom for me were going to be they were they were elderly um, they they were you know in their late 80s and in their 90s and I needed to reach out to them quickly um, I could not imagine at the beginning that my dad would have agreed to have used a sperm donor. I read up on the halacha, the you know, the body of Jewish law, and it was really very painful reading for me because the Halacha spelled out that this would have been utterly forbidden. The word that was used and everything that I read was this is an abomination. Right? So I thought my father he was a black and white thinker. His observance was the defining aspect of his, um, you know, humanness. And I, I couldn't imagine it. So I went to see um, Rabbi Haskell Lookstein, who some of you may know whose congregation is on the Upper East Side. I went to see him because Rabbi Lookstein and my dad had known each other. Um, Rabbi Lukstein's father, who was the founder of Ramaz, and my grandfather had known each other. And I thought maybe my father, as a young man, if he had sought rabbinic advice, maybe he would have gone to Luxstein, Or maybe Luxtein would have a window into what he might have thought. And I sat with him, and we had this you know, long meeting together. And where he came out was when he finally understood what I was saying to him, which was a lot. Um, he, he said, kol hakavod kavod to your father. All the honor to your father. If, God forbid, my wife had been a situation where we couldn't have children, I would have done the same thing. He threw the rule book out. He threw it away. The halacha, it was like, that's not what this is about. And then I had a very similar experience with my Aunt Shirley, my father's 90, then 93 and a half year old um, sister, his younger sister, who I went to see in Chicago. And to just give you a little bit of a sense of my Aunt Shirley, she is the matriarch of a family at this point that has 70 great grandchildren. Um, they're all um, orthodox. Um, many of them live in Israel. They're, they're, um, they're a devout family and, um, and I'm very close to her. And I went there to tell her essentially that we are not biologically related. And I had debated about whether to do that or not and then I thought, I have to because maybe she knew. My father was very close to her. Maybe he would have told her. Maybe he would have gone to her. And once Shirley understood everything that I was saying to her, she essentially said the same thing that Rabbi Lukstein said. She said, your father would have felt he was performing a mitzvah. Um, it would be completely within his genre to have done exactly that and to never have spoken it again. So that was this fascinating thing to me because I had always considered the Orthodox world, the world that I was raised in, as utterly black and white. The halacha says this, then you don't do it. And there was this whole other range of, well, and really at its depth, what that has to do with is the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, you know, pru uravu, and that that probably superseded any other um, halachic ruling.
2: And the interesting thing is you sort of go into these encounters expecting to be somehow shunned from both the community and your family, and that's actually not what happens at all, right?
6: No, that's not what happens at all. In fact, just this week, uh, Shirley, who lives in Chicago, was visiting um, one of her grandchildren who lives in Teaneck, New Jersey, and she called me, and I went to visit on Monday. And I was sitting with Shirley and with her oldest daughter, uh, who, my cousin, who is the first time that I've been with any of my cousins since the book came out, since they've all read it, since, you know, they, they... the, this revelation, and in fact, if anything, it's actually brought us all closer, because it's this feeling of like, oh, that makes so much sense. Now we understand. Now we all understand, and I think we feel more connected and more related to each other out of that understanding, because there was like this, this like Pandora's box that was just always sitting there. Um, secrets don't disappear just because they're unspoken, they just go somewhere and live and glow in the corners and fester. And I think that that really was something that was happening in my family because this was a secret that my parents absolutely intended to take and did take to the grave with them.
2: So that sense of, oh, this makes sense. Did you did you have that? I mean, I know obviously your identity is being so complicated by this, by this news, particularly that you are not fully Jewish. But was there also, you know, you've written before about your movement away from the religious world you were raised in and I mean does this sort of play into that do you think?
6: I actually feel more Jewish now Um, and I also am aware that I have this biological father who and ancestors who came over literally on the Mayflower. Um, (laughs) You cannot make this stuff up. Um, But they're not psychologically my ancestors, they are biologically my ancestors. You know, when I was when I was writing Inheritance, I thought to myself, what is universal about this story? What am I learning that I actually can impart from going on this really emotionally treacherous journey of making this discovery? And there was a moment um, in the years, the couple of years that I was researching and writing and thinking, where I met with Rabbi David Waltbe, uh in L.A. I knew him slightly and... He ended up sitting with me for a long time, and we talked about all this. And, 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 and Rabbi Wolpe said to me, everyone feels other. And I said to him, really, everyone feels other? And he said, smart people feel other. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't write that in the book. Um, uh, smart Jews feel other. Um, and he said, you have gone to the front of otherness, and you're coming back with something to teach us. And I thought, all right, well, what what, what am I learning? So here... I had this childhood in which things didn't add up. I felt different. I felt other. I felt like my nose was pressed to the glass. I felt like an outsider, but I had no reason to be feeling like an outsider. And so what a child does in that situation is turn that information and that feeling against herself. You know, it's like, why would I be feeling this way? I have these impeccable credentials. I come from the youngest grandchild of this family. Why do I feel other? and there was something about, I write in the book, all my life I knew there was a secret. What I didn't know was that the secret was me. You know, and there's this way in which when that is the case, you can't, it doesn't add up.
2: Thank you, Danny. This was amazing. Thank you. That was me chatting with Danny Shapiro at the Jewish Museum as part of the Jewish Book Councils unpacking the book series. I'll be back this spring with more conversations there, and I will let you know when they are happening. Mazel tobs Leo do you have a mazel Top for us this week
1: Oh Of epic proportions Yeah To Hudson Siegfried Zev Leibowitz My man First grader As of this morning
0: Ooh Well I'll jump right in And say that David Walter Oppenheimer Turns one On September 3rd
2: Look at him I always forget about him <laughs> <laughs> Like, I remember going to his bris and i s- seen him we'll on FaceTime.
0: We'll see you time. again in your bar mitzvah, David. <laughs> and I want to throw in a couple other mazel tovs. Last night, I watched the greatest Jewish tennis player on the planet at this moment. Diego. Oh, how great is he? Diego Schwartzman of Argentina uh, beating uh, Zverev, uh, whatever his name is, R- Russian guy Zverev, in the U.S. Open uh, round of 16. He's moving on to the quarterfinals. Who knows where he'll be by the time you hear this show? I so
2: many text messages about Diego Schwartzman, the Jewish Tennis player. And, it's an amazing story. It's and, like up there with like the Nobel Prize. You know, growing winners. up, he had
1: to skip meals because his family. I like, couldn't afford tennis lessons and food. I didn't know
0: that actually. Well, but that I that's, was not in the text messages. That yet. anyway, Diego Schwartzman, Davey Schwartzman, Diego. Uh, soon by you in the finals of the in the winners' circle yeah. of the U.S. Open. We're we're pulling for you here, doing it for five seven-ish men everywhere. Diego Schwartzman. Uh, I also want to give a Mazel tov to Ella Levy and Matt Doltis. They are getting married on September 22nd at the new West End Synagogue in Bayswater, London. Ooh, Mazel fancy. Tov!
2: We got some more birthday Mazel tovs. My dad, Howie B, Howie His Howie birthday B. is September 4th, and it will have happened by the time this airs. A cool Muzzle 53 through. years old, yeah. Howie yeah. B. Yeah, and Stella Cross producer josh's daughter is also has the same birthday as him it's very exciting
0: very exciting it's
2: just a birthday week and i also want to throw a shout out to alice hoffman she came on the show it was episode 110 to talk about her book the rules of magic which was basically like a prequel to um practical magic which is obviously already a movie that is becoming an hbo show that we can all watch
0: mazel tov, alice hoffman Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. If you're not reading articles in Tablet Magazine, you should go to tabletmag.com and read some articles. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Call and leave us voicemails. We like the voicemails. We like hearing you. 914-570-4869. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join us on our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our editor is Melissa Kaplan. Artwork is by Esther Wordiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our music is by golem and our mailbox theme is by steve barton if you think you'd like to see us live in this coming season of live shows and book talks and all sorts of author appearances go to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live rabbinic supervision this week by rabbi dr moshe friedman of the new west end synagogue bayswater london and also by rabbi georgette kennebrae of the west end synagogue in manhattan see we've got new west end and west end we come to you from argo studios which is novak djokovic's trainer shalom friends